So my kids went back to school this week. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I have noticed is this steady flow of stuff that comes into our house. It's just like these constant inputs of school stuff and, of course, our work stuff and decorations based on the season and gifts that they get at birthday parties. There's just this constant stream of inputs into our home, into our space, into our house. And I try to have a steady stream, right, of output <laughs> as well. Like I have this, um, just a bag hanging by the kid's door, and I, I say to them, I'm like, if the clothes don't fit anymore, stick it in the bag to go to the ARC thrift store. You know, if you don't want the stuffy anymore, stick it in the bag. Like, let's move these things out. But it seems like the flow or the stream of things coming in is just so much stronger most days than the flow or the stream of things going out. It takes a lot of intentionality to, you know, just like move. I feel like from time to time I'm like, Saturday morning, that's it. Just like pack up five bags. We're taking it all to the ark. <laughs> We're moving it on. We're giving it away. Uh, in a similar way, I think this clutter happens in our souls, happens in our lives, that there is so much frequent input these days with less frequent output. There's so much coming in. I mean, if you are a person who goes to the gym or gets your nails done at a salon or if you go to any number of restaurants in town, it would not be unusual to get into that space and have like not one, not five, but maybe six, seven, eight big TVs surrounding you as you walk on the treadmill. So while you sit there, you can like have your pick, you know, game show, news, global crisis of the week, soap opera, like all at the same time, you have this input, all of this coming in. And we're in this series right now called Decision Making 101. And today we're going to be talking about becoming a soul minimalist, the three buckets inside of you, and that nasty little TV in your pocket. <laughs> because Last week, Tim talked about how we make 35,000 decisions each day. And we cannot possibly make good decisions, wise decisions, from a state of chaos, a state of so much clutter. When faced with big decisions, you know, where do I send my kids to school? How do I deal with my aging parents? Should I take this job or should I wait for another one? Should I stay in this house or should I move to another one? Should I take the recommended treatment or, or go an alternative route? Often our souls are kind of like our houses. They're just so full of clutter. There is not space for good decision making. And so it just feels kind of chaotic inside. 
Like, how am I ever going to decide, let alone make a wise choice, a good choice? And then we have these words of Jesus from the scriptures when Jesus says to us, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. We have these words of Jesus juxtaposed with all of this coming at us, our external world being so stimulating, the inputs almost automatic. You go to pump gas, and there's a TV playing for you right there. News, media, emails, texts. Our screens are like constantly sending us stuff, and it clutters our minds, and it clutters our hearts and our souls with, you know, information, good stuff, ideas, inspiration, sometimes sorrow. But the question is this, where is the output for you? Like all of this is coming in, what is the output in your life? Where are the spaces for you where you are regularly getting rid of that soul clutter? Where is the output? How are you practicing letting some of these things go, letting them come out and go when your soul is filled with clutter so that you might be able to have space for those decisions that come. Part of Decision Making 101 is just developing practices and commitments to being a soul minimalist. And I don't think, kind of like uh, you watch these shows on minimalism or you read a book on minimalism and everybody seems to emphasize this is not so much a destination you will ever get to, but a journey that is important to be on. You may never be, I for sure will never be Marie Kondo, right? Is that her name? I think that's her name. The sole minimalist lady whose house is super, super simple. I'm never going to be her, but I can practice getting rid of things that subtly creep in and take up too much space in my life. The same is true for our interior lives. Because when we're constantly in motion, you know, like standing in the grocery store, checking email, sending a quick text at the stoplight, when we are constantly in that state, we are in a constant state of anxiety. Our bodies are rehearsing anxiety rather than practicing the unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus spoke of. In his book, The More of Less, author Joshua Becker says this, minimalism is not that you should own nothing, but that nothing should own you. So then the question is like, what is owning you? Because the best, we know this, but the best things in life are not things at all. And Becker says a really interesting thing. He says, it's not enough to just declutter we also have to de-own. 
it's not enough to just declutter. We also have to de-own. And I was thinking about that as it relates to our souls and the things that sometimes creep in, good things, that become ultimate things. It's what the Bible calls an idol, a good thing, that became an ultimate thing. It sort of took the place of God. It's not enough to just like declutter. We have to de-own. We have to get that straight. When our souls feel crowded with movement and screens and inputs coming at us all the time, sometimes we have to pause. And it's almost like stillness is to the soul what de-owning is to a house, decluttering and de-owning, getting rid of stuff. Stillness is that. It's that place where we stop and we say before in the loving presence of the Lord, what is to stay? What is to just fall away? What is to be addressed? The scriptures say that there's a time for everything, right? There is a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. There is a season for everything under the sun. Another way to think about soul minimalism being sort of a foundation for good decision-making is to think for a moment as if you are having all these inputs into your life and inside of you is like three buckets, okay? So all these things are coming into your life and you have these three buckets. Let's say that you call your mother-in-law once a week and last night you were chatting with her on the phone and she made a comment that just kind of, mm, it irked you. It, it rubbed you wrong. You kind of got sideways with each other on the phone. That's something that came in to your life. And stillness is to the soul what decluttering is to the home. And so when that comes in, where is the space where you acknowledge in the loving presence of God, that didn't feel so good, that conversation with that family member. And then when you acknowledge that, you know, you kind of have some options inside of you. You can say it with me, let it go, right? You can attempt to fix it, address it, talk to her about it, or you can don't fix it, don't let it go. Okay, this is the bucket where misery lives, <laughs> right? I was going to say that. That is where misery lives. So let, just simple example. You have this conversation. You get a little sideways with someone. Maybe it's someone you love. Normally, you can, in the loving presence of God, you can t acknowledge that. You can say, ooh, that didn't feel good. And maybe the Lord is going to lead you to let that one go. What does that look like? You let it go maybe by journaling about it. Maybe by going like, I'm going to go take a hike, and I'm going to write that out, and I'm just going to bury it. I'm just going to trust it to you, God. I'm going to let it go. Maybe go for a hard run. Maybe you schedule something with like a soul friend who you can confide in, kind of process, but you've got to let that one go. Sometimes you have a conversation like that, and it's like in the presence of God, it's like, no, it, it is time to have a courageous conversation to share, like, this is how this impacted me, or to apologize, like, maybe something that I said provoked that, and I want to own that. So sometimes it's fixed, but, but when we just stew and don't let something go and don't attempt to address it, what happens is we, we build those things up and we just become miserable, right? So where is that regular practice of getting quiet and going, what is it that's come in through the news, through relationships, at my work, in my family, 
What do I need to let go? What do I need to address? God, would you help me to discern and to see and to know which one it is? When we let something go, we're sort of leaning in on that biblical wisdom to cast all your anxieties onto God because he cares for you. And there is a place for just saying, God, I trust this to you. There is no fixing this. There is no solving this. But help me to trust this hard thing, whatever it may be, to you. My spiritual director shared this quote with me. I, uh, it, it has stayed with me because I think there are times in silence, in quiet, in stillness, where uh, we're expecting it to look one way, but because of the idols, the good things in our lives that become ultimate things, the things that become too important, the things that start to own us, it doesn't always look how we might think it would look. And this quote says this, uh, you keep pairing me with quiet, he said, but my true companion is the mighty clamor of change being ripped clean from the wall. You keep pairing me with quiet, he said, but my true companion is the mighty clamor of chains being ripped from the wall. Why is that? Because there's so many ways in which, you know, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like these are the main things, but there are these, these ways in which good things in our lives kind of subtly, sneakily become ultimate things. So take, for example, this is a very simple one, but like providing for your family. That's a good thing, right? Everyone's going to agree, necessary thing, good thing. But here's the thing. When something good becomes ultimate, we start to forget that providing for your family is more than just money. It is your presence, it is your attention, it is your availability to bear witness to the lives of those in your home. So providing for your family is a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, we can lose sight of the fact that provision looks like more than just money. You know, we were, um, we were watching the... I don't know if you have seen, uh, it's on Netflix right now, Pilgrim's Progress. My dad read us that story as a kid with like a big book. And right now they've, you know, they've made it into a movie. And we're watching the movie with the kids. And there is this scene where, you know, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, you know, he's writing, there's this man Christian. And he is on the path to the king and to the king's kingdom. And he's walking in this one scene. Christian is walking alongside another character named Hopeful. So Christian and Hopeful are walking along the straight path to the king, to the king's kingdom. And they notice as they're walking that there is what John Bunyan calls the parallel path. And the parallel path, it's greener. It's easier. It's not as many rocks. And it's leading in the same direction. It's parallel to the path. And so they reason, well, let's just hop the wall and go along this parallel path. And then over time, 
that parallel path veers off and leads them straight into the cage of despair. This is such a brilliant picture of exactly what happens in our lives, where good things become ultimate things, leading us away from what God has for us. And, oh, in so many conversations right now, it seems to me that for many, many folks that, you know, there's been this sense of like hanging on for the last 18 months and now it's like kind of can't hang on anymore, like the bottom is falling out. It's like we hung on and now, whoa, we just like can't anymore. And if this is you, if you feel like it is just all too much right now, global pandemic, state of the world, divisions in our own nation, so much sorrow and despair in Afghanistan and Haiti, and it's all just coming in. If, if it just all feels like too much to you, can I just say, like, it is. It is. I don't think God made our psyches to feel and to hold and to respond to every pain that is coming at us right now. Like we're not designed to hold and to feel and to respond to every sorrow and every injustice and every pain in every human being across the entire planet that comes in through our news feeds. We're not, we're not made to bear all that. We are designed by God to feel to hold and to respond to every pain and sorrow within our village, right? Within the community of real people God's placed us in. So if it all feels like too much, yeah. In the last 15 years, uh, maybe more, but roughly that, you know, we've gone from a TV in the living room to a TV in our pockets. That's a big deal as far as the amount coming at us. And we have to find ways to create boundaries around that reality of our phones in our pockets. For some folks, you know, that looks like turning off notifications. Or if you've ever read Andy, uh, Andy Crouch has a book called Tech Wise Family, and he, he suggests turning off all devices, all screens, for an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year. Some people say the first hour of my day and the last hour of my day will be screen free. I don't know what it is for you, but this reality of everybody having a TV in their pocket with just everything coming at us, we have to find ways to, to place boundaries around this. We have to ask ourselves, am I in control of these screens or are these screens controlling me? Who's in charge here? I like the way Emily P. Freeman says this. She says, Facebook, you do not get to interrupt me. Instagram, you do not have my permission to tap me on the shoulder whenever you want to. Headlines, I can read you all at once later. I do not need to know the moment news breaks. Phone, you are not allowed to boss me. I have good work to do. I have a life to live. I have decisions to make. Because here's the thing, God has given you this breath, he's given you this breath. 
He's given you this place to worship him. He's given you this day. He's given you this day to practice living in his presence. He's given you your people so that you might do the next right thing in love with them. He's given you this breath. He's given you this day. He's given you these people. So to spread love, you know, where you are is to write yourself a big permission slip. Like maybe you need to go home and literally write yourself a permission slip and give yourself permission as the world opens back up in different ways to not be everything, to not do everything. You don't need to be an expert on every global matter. You don't need a wise soundbite on every single injustice that faces our world. Here's what you need. You need to practice the presence of God with every breath you're given. Here's what you need to do. The next right thing in love with the people right before you. That's it. God invites us into each moment to simply do the next right thing in love. So as we close, um, I'm going to pray a poem. And I want to invite you to just close your eyes. Consider a big decision before you or something that's heavy for you. This poem comes from a book that was published in 1897. It's, it's called Ye Next Thing. <laughs> and as you hear these words, will you just imagine God walking with you, inviting you to release what might be heavy, to release the burden, to release the heavy decisions into his loving care. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend deeply engraven, like it seems to me teaching from heaven. And through the hours, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Oh, he would have thee daily more free, knowing the might of the royal degree ever in waiting, glad for his call, tranquil in chastening, trusting through all. Comings and goings, no turmoil need bring. His, all the future. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand. Who hath placed it before thee with earnest pain. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all results. Do the next thing. Looking to Jesus ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In the shade of his presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, live out thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise him and sing. Then 
as he beckons thee, do the next thing. God, may it be true. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And everybody everywhere said, Amen. Amen.